Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Rick Sweet. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast segment of the show that's not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for this 351st show is Simon Cordery, chair of the history department at Iowa State University. We're going to be talking about Albert Benson Pullman. Our history buffs are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. And Ed, let's start you. have you start us off. Thanks, Jay. Um, Professor Cordery, what eventually happened to the Pullman Car Company? Did they survive into the 20th century, and were they kind of caught in the downdraft of the Great Depression when all the trolley car companies went out of business? Or, And then also, what happens to those fortunes? The Pullman Company survived. It was subject to a federal court order in 1920 to divest itself either of the production of railroad cars or of the operation of railroad cars. And the company decided that it would stay in the business of building the railroad cars, but it would no longer operate them. So what happened was railroad corporations that were running Pullmans purchased those cars from the Pullman company and the porters and the conductors who were in charge of those cars who had been Pullman employees became employees of the specific railroad companies like the BNO or the Santa Fe. And so the company itself went through rough times in the Great Depression. It merged with a another railroad car manufacturer called Standard, and they became the Standard Pullman Company. And the Standard Pullman Company is still in existence today, and they're still making freight cars, no longer making passenger cars. They survived the Great Depression, and Pullmans were manufactured, the Pullman railroad cars, the passenger cars, were manufactured into the 1960s. But of course, by the end of the 60s, with the competition that railroads faced from long-distance aircraft and from the interstate highway system, there was no way that the Pullman cars were going to remain in any kind of market. And so they pulled out of the the passenger car market completely. Um, Can you expand a little bit on the the court order uh, that you talked about? Was this as a result of some newly passed antitrust laws? No, it was a result of a long-running series of concerns that the railroad companies had and that the federal government had, that Pullman had a monopoly on long-distance travel. And so, yeah, it wasn't a matter of new laws. It was a matter of continuously trying to apply existing laws. It wasn't as spectacular as the Northern Securities case that broke up the the Western Railroad monopoly, but it was um, quite an important case given that it made the company choose between either building or operating. Okay, Brett. Are there any um, historic railroads or any place where people can still ride on a Pullman car? Sure, there are private Pullman cars that are occasionally um, rented out to, well, any member of the public can rent cars. There's an association of private rail car owners, and if you go to their website, they will have information about how to rent private cars. There are 
several Pullmans still in use. One of the most famous is called the Dover Harbour, which was built, I think, in 1928 or 29. And the Dover Harbour is a car that you can rent and attach it to the back of a regularly scheduled Amtrak and travel across the country. It's not cheap and it's not easy. Amtrak has been making it harder and harder for private car owners to switch their cars onto Amtrak trains, but it's still feasible. And if you go to um, preservation railroads, you will find um, the occasional Pullman car. Yes, definitely. Simon, uh, follow up on what uh, Ed, second part of his original question, what happened to the fortune, the Pullman fortune? uh, uh, Did the Methodist ministers get any of that money? So the Methodist ministers were getting chunks of that fortune all the way through, which is how they were able to live as, uh, as, as well as Unitarians, at least as Unitarian ministers. But um, the, so, so Albert's Pullman was divided between the two surviving daughters, and that money was eventually frittered away. George's fortune, which was much more substantial, went to his wife. George died a few years after the great Pullman strike of 1894, in part because of the stress brought on by by that calamitous event and the money went to his wife his wife then used it in a in a variety of ways to invest in philanthropies and to enjoy life herself the fortune continued on there were um, several Pullman children who survived her uh, one of whom married um, into a family the Millers who are still around today and who still, as far as I know, uh, are beneficiaries of that wealth. So yeah, I think the, the wealth has lived on. The, the family itself has been very generous about donating all of their papers to the Chicago History Museum and to the Newbury Library, which has allowed me to do much of this research. And they are, um, yeah, that, that money is like many of the, of the great robber barons' stashes it's still floating around. It's nothing like the Rockefeller wealth or the Morgan wealth, but it's certainly there. Um, Simon, so I, I want to take us to the strike, and and I'm a little bit off. I don't think Albert is still involved in the company by the time the strike takes place. Um, and, and he also strikes me as somebody who might have been pretty sympathetic to to workers of all stripes, thinking of himself as much as a of a craftsman and as artisan as as he did as a businessman um so what do you think albert would have or or what did maybe i should ask because i don't know when albert died what did albert think of or how did he react to the strike when it happened yeah unfortunately for george albert died in 1893 um and then the strike was the next year Albert had been suffering poor health for many years, and in 1893, at the World's Columbian Exposition, visitors to the transportation building could see the rather absurd contrast of the Pullman Company's full-size vestibule train and a massive scale model of the Pullman village, and then tucked away in the corner was poor old Albert with a sliding car door that he had patented and was trying to sell. Unfortunately, uh, Albert died uh, late in 1893. And yeah, I think that the, the, the point could be made that had Albert lived, he would have been a moderating influence on George. The strike may have been averted, probably not 
George was pretty stubborn and George was very dedicated to the notion that we would consider to be a kind of a free market, laissez-faire economic system. And so the strike was caused when uh, the number of contracts were um, cancelled and there was no work for many of the workers in Pullman. And George lowered wages, but at the same time as he lowered wages, he didn't lower the rents that many Pullman workers were paying to the Pullman company for the houses they lived in, in the village of Pullman. So uh, essentially his blindness caused the strike. Can it's sort of a follow-up on that. Can you talk to us, because I don't think a lot of our listeners, at least, understand what, what it really means to live in a company town. Um, okay. We don't have those kinds of things around anymore, or at least people aren't aware of them. Um, so can you kind of walk through what that means to have lived in Pullman? Sure. It meant for the workers who lived there, and only about half of the labor force actually lived in the company town. It meant that you lived in very nice, by the standards of the days, housing. It meant that you paid rent to the company. It meant that the company had the right to come into your house at any time to make sure that you were maintaining the standards of cleanliness that the company wanted. It meant that the company could evict you at any time because the company owned the houses. It meant that the company expected you to spend your wages in the company stores. Now, by 1894, the notion of truck, where the company pays you in script that you then take to the company store and you can only spend it in the company store, that's less common. And it was never the, the case in Pullman. Pullman always paid their wages in cash. So workers could go to nearby Roseland or Kensington and buy stuff in the stores there. What they could not do in the town of Pullman was drink alcohol. There was no alcohol, although there was a hotel and there were several restaurants, there was no alcohol in the town of Pullman. So your, your life is very carefully regimented. There are things you can do and there's lots of things that you're not supposed to do. It, I think most people today would find it incredibly alienating. It would be very, very hard to live that way. And lots of people at the time also found it very difficult to abide by the rules and regulations of the Pullman town. But Simon, did uh, the residents of the employee residents of uh, Pullman town, uh, uh, were they relatively happy or relatively sad? <laughs> Wow, that's the million-dollar question. Depends who you ask. If you ask the Pullman Company, they're very, very happy. Um, there were sociological examinations. In fact, the famous labor economist Richard Ely wrote a piece about Pullman, and the, the verdict is still out. Yeah, there were people who loved it. There were people who loved the fact that the town was orderly and quiet and clean, and there were others who missed the sound of kids running in the street and stuff like that. So it depended upon your attitude but of course when the rents were not lowered and wages were everyone was unhappy understood we would like to thank our guests for this 351st show simon cordery chairman of the history department at iowa state university who talked to us about albert benson pullman the history of us for today's show were brett menard and ed broders you can listen to ROI as it is being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM, and 106.1 FM in the Quad Cities region at 9.30. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. 
Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard on SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio, one word, in the search box to find ROI. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.